Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme, however, on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Brian Carr. Brian is the Chief Executive of the Birmingham Voluntary Service Council. Uh, Brian, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Scott. Good to be with you. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well, Brian. Now, of course, the dominant issue which has plagued the headlines, let's say, over the course of 2020 is, of course, the ongoing COVID-19 situation. And it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. Um, But for the likes of yourselves at BVSC, to what extent has all of this affected things? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. It has been very much central to everyone's mind and central to our work over the last few few months. Um, for, from BBSC's point of view, it's really affected us in two key ways. One is we, we've been affected as a business in our own right, and I'll come on to that in a second. Um, but also, we have been very much at the uh, heart of working with our strategic partners in Birmingham, the City Council, the NHS and others, to help communities to respond to COVID and, and you know deal with the effects of COVID. So it's been very much part of our ongoing work, the stuff that we're focusing on in terms of helping our beneficiaries, uh, but it's also had an effect on our own business too. And how long can you sort of see this period and this sort of impact lasting for just because even when we do hopefully have a working vaccine in future and COVID-19 itself is no longer an immediate danger just given the impact that it's going to have on people's anxieties and consumer confidence as well in a lot of sectors it could take some time for some sort of normality to return even when it's safe to do so so we could be sort of in this state of being for quite some time. Yes, and I think we've got to obviously be realistic about the fact that it's not going to go away overnight. Even if there uh, is a vaccine, it's going to take time for uh, things to get back to some kind of semblance of normality. And of course, many organisations will be feeling the effects of COVID uh, for a long time based on uh, the the difference that they've seen in terms of uh, their ability to deliver their services and the effect that it's had on jobs and so on. Uh, You know, I mentioned that, you know, we've been through uh, the the process of dealing with COVID ourselves. BBSC is a voluntary sector support agency. We work to provide business development support to local charities and advocacy support to community groups. Uh, we support the public sector to engage with civil society. Uh, and we ra- we operate a range of voluntary sector-led programs. We work in the areas of youth unemployment, uh, tackling isolation among the elderly, improving systems uh, for those who are dealing with multiple complex needs, including homelessness. So, you know, COVID has just impacted uh, on all of the things that we are we are working in. And we also run a conference centre. That's one of the ways that we generate income uh, for our business, as well as uh, you know, you know, getting funding from various different funders in the uh, in the country. Um, and one of the things that happened, of course, very early on, was we had to shut down the operation of the conferencing uh, building, uh, and that's meant that we've not had the trading income that we would have expected. So we've seen an effect in that sense. Mm. And you know, the, when we start 
doing doing work with our local members, we're seeing them uh, very much affected in the same way. And uh, I, I think we all need to prepare for several more months of uh, disruption. But we also need to be focusing on what can we do to adapt to this environment? What can we, we be doing to uh, support the people who are worst affected and the communities that are most affected by by COVID? That's, that's really what our focus is. And um, on the programme very recently, what we have been trying to do as well, Brian, is find some silver lining in what has ultimately been quite a dark and dense cloud over all of us. So just reflecting on what you've seen during the pandemic and perhaps what you've learned during this period of crisis management, is there anything that you can say you can take forward as a positive from all of this that you've picked up? Well, definitely. I think the the thing that we've been focused on, as I say, is making sure that the voluntary sector and uh, community sector is able to meet the needs of its beneficiaries. And in Birmingham, we worked in partnership, close partnership with a range of voluntary sector partners and the local authority and the local NHS to coordinate responses to COVID. And that was you know, right across the board. So we saw... Uh, that kind of upswell of grassroots volunteering support, neighbourliness. You know, we, we hear stories about people who met neighbours that they didn't even know because they were helping each other make sure that they got food supplies and medicine supplies and they were doing welfare checks on, on people who were isolated and on their own. Um, we coordinated a couple of voluntary sector partnerships, one that looked at the geographical coverage of the city. So we looked at local uh, anchor organisations in each of Birmingham's 10 districts, bringing them together, uh, connecting them up with volunteers and with other other services. And we also had a, a network of thematic leaders uh, from the voluntary sector who were uh, covering the kind of areas you'd expect in relation to COVID. So food, um, homelessness, domestic uh, abuse, um, you know, housing, uh, bereavement, um, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. So we had voluntary sector leads in each of these areas. Uh, so really what we, we were able to create, uh, or rather what we were able to access, because it's not as though we created it, it was actually there already waiting to be tapped into, was this network and web of support that existed across the city. And what the crisis did was it stimulated that web. And what we saw was just a whole range of connections being made. Um, and I think what it showed me, one was that uh, in Birmingham, and I'm sure this is true in many other parts of the country, all parts of the country, actually, there's a tremendous amount of social capital uh, in this country, people who will come together at times of need. Um, and also, what it also demonstrated was that there are people who are willing to step up into leadership roles and who will actually take responsibility for pulling things together, connecting with each other, uh, working together to tackle the, the problem that we're facing. So we saw an awful lot of that. Um, you know, I, I've kind of characterized it. People have asked me, what's the, the key factor that made all that happen? And I've characterized it as people and organizations got their egos out of the way and just up you know, all mucked in and helped each other, and that was that was a very heartening thing to see. But it took some organising, and it and it mm. will continue to take some organising to make sure that it continues to happen. It will exactly right. Um, but the, one of the positives that we have seen is that collaboration that we've seen on an unprecedented scale as well, and that's no more underpinned by what we've seen from the pharmaceutical uh, giants in the quest for a vaccine and um, they've been sharing intellectual property on an unprecedented scale so there are certainly positives to take from this i think that is absolutely right now um one thing that the pandemic has also done is it has amplified the um the importance of mental health and well-being within leadership what we've seen people doing in charge of various organizations and various businesses is stepping up and being beacons of reassurance trying obviously keep people motivated during this time constantly checking in on their mental health and well-being especially 
especially when there's the remote working in place and we're quite often operating from a distance. Um, but also when this is happening, it can be very easy, probably even in the everyday world of running a business and to sort of get drawn into the hectic world of it all and not take the time to take a step back and sort of consider your own mental health. And let alone at a time like this where you are more likely to sort of come under the strain because all of this is very much mentally taxing. So as leaders, I mean, it is important as well that we also make sure that we look after our own mental well-being as well, isn't it? Um, safeguarding everybody else's is, of course, so important, but you can't forget about your own as well. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, you know, we can't really do that on our own. So it's really important that, that support is in place for that. So mm. in my organisation, in BBSC, you know, I'm very fortunate as a leader because I have an extremely talented staff team um, who who very much took responsibility for various different uh, aspects of our COVID response. And one of the things that BBSC offers in return for um, uh, you know, staff's work is access to uh, mental health support. So we have a counselling service that pe- people can tap into uh, confidentially if they need support. Uh, we work really hard to, as well as focusing on the kind of the business activities that we had to get on with, we had staff members who were using all this amazing technology that we've all got used to over the last few months, like Zoom and so on, to pull together uh, social groups and craft clubs and quiz clubs and all kinds of things like this, which allowed people to to stay connected uh, and supported and, and in touch with each other. And those of us who are in leadership roles have been making use of uh, those facilities as well, and that's been been fantastic. But it's also important, I think, for leaders to model that so you're quite right we can't um we can't pretend that these things uh, don't affect us too so um we've been very clear with our staff that we we want staff to let us know if there's an issue we want staff to remain connected we've obviously all been working from home uh, although we have had periods of time when the our building has been accessible by staff and what we're trying to do very much is allow people to figure out what works for them because working from home it's great for some people and not so great for others. So where mm. possible and where COVID safe, we've, we've offered options for people to access the building and have a bit of peace and quiet if they need that. But equally, we've been very clear with people that we've we've placed no expectation on people to come back to work in the office if, if they don't have to. Uh, and our kind of um, business is, is, is such that it lends itself to home working as much as anything else. It isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. You are absolutely right. And um, it is important to uh, to consider that going forward. And um, just thinking about um, the arguments for mental health and well-being on both sort of moving toward remote working and also having offices and um, conventional workplaces returning as they were, do you think we'll ever see the office as we knew it ever come back in vogue? Or do we think that we're going to see a bit of a hybrid of the two in the workplace of the future? Well, there's lots of speculation about that, isn't there? I think it's very difficult to know for sure. I think the, the problem we have at the moment, of course, is we're still very much in the midst of this crisis. And it's kind of easy to think that things will just go on like this or, or some form of this will go on seemingly forever. But of course, that may not be the case. So, um, But what I do think is that a number of us have learned and seen firsthand just how useful some of this new, I say new, it's not, it's not new technology, is it? But it's new to many people. So some people who'd never had to access Zoom and the kind of remote working facilities they've had now know how to do it. And I think it has flagged things up, uh, like it's possible to have meetings uh, for a diverse group of people 
who previously would have had to travel from all parts of the country to get together. They can get together very easily from the comfort of their own home with minimal travel, minimal impact on the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And I think all of that won't be forgotten. I think organizations would and should be mindful of that. When we get back to some form of normality, we've got to make sure we don't just go back to the way things were before just because it's uh, the easy um, thing to do and the kind of uh, habitual thing to do. We should think carefully about the things we go back to have got to be gone back to for good reason. And if some of these new ways of working are going to continue to be good ways of working in this, this new environment, whatever that new environment is, we should we should look to that. We should make the most of those opportunities. Um, so I think, I think we will see a hybrid of um, different types of working arrangement. But exactly what that hybrid will look like, I think it's too early to say. Mm, I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, few months and indeed years to see exactly what that, what form that is uh, going to take. And thinking about the future, Brian, just before we do wrap things up, um, I would like to sort of address the next 12 months very closely here because over that period of time, we know that we're going to have to persist with the new normal for quite a big chunk of it, at least until we get through the winter and we start to understand what the COVID landscape is going to look like by the springtime. But in an ideal world, um, considering the work that you're doing at BVS, at the moment where would you like yourselves to be this time in a year and what are you really hoping to have achieved well you know i mentioned the two kind of um angles that i'm looking at this from the, the business angle of running bvsc and also our role in supporting birmingham's community so on, on the first angle i i want us to be back to uh, full capacity in terms of being able to serve Birmingham's communities and voluntary sector through the BBSC building, so having uh, people able to access conferencing and so on and meeting space as they did previously, uh, obviously in COVID-safe ways, depending on where we are in 12 months' time. Uh, so I'm very much uh, focused on that and making sure that we continue to be a resource to the city as we have been uh, even through the, the pandemic, and in fact, even more so through the pandemic uh, because we've been so focused on the COVID response. Uh, then more broadly speaking, uh, I want BVSC to be working with the city's voluntary sector and public sector partners to continue to support Birmingham's communities and to use the opportunity to build a better Birmingham. So I think one of the things we uh, shouldn't fall into the trap of doing is thinking that it's all about recovery in the sense of going back to how things were. We should be looking to build a better future. We know, for example, that uh, BAME communities were disproportionately affected by COVID and also in some cases found it harder to access the kind of support that's been available. Now, that cannot continue and should not continue. So my focus will be on working with partners to make sure that everyone in Birmingham can access the kind of support that we we know we always knew was available, but we've really seen it writ large now. The incredible connectivity between sectors, between volunteers and, and businesses, and all of that kind of community uh, capacity that can be tapped into. We we want to be at the heart of that and driving that forward. Sounds like um, you've got plenty to be getting your teeth stuck into and um, it will be great to see exactly what comes of those partnerships between uh, the local authority bodies in Birmingham. And, you know, I actually think just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme this afternoon, Brian, that we should catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on the show with us, perhaps, just to see how some of those plans are starting to really come to fruition and what sort of shape this build back better future that the government wants is starting to take. 
Well, I, I would be very glad to come back. I'm very confident. I think Birmingham um, is, you know, the, the city of Birmingham and all the strategic partners and its local communities are doing a great job of working together. They've got huge challenges to face, but uh, the signs are very good that that work can continue. And I'd be very glad to come back and, and speak about it to you in a year's time when hopefully things will be back to some kind of normality. Well, let's see exactly what sort of shape that normality is going to take, Brian. It's been a real pleasure having you join us this afternoon and uh, most importantly as well, until we do get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. Thank you. And you, Scott. I'd also like to extend that message to all of our listeners tuning into today's podcast. Please do continue to look after yourselves, stay well and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to speak to Brian Carr, Chief Executive of Birmingham Voluntary Service Council on today's show. Um, Next up on the programme, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help 
which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, 
I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or 
public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. 
And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the 
scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition 
nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.